Hey guys, I'm Pete. And I'm Alex. And you're listening to the Kick Push Pivot Podcast. I'm a former Fortune 500 consultant dedicated to the idea of innovation and growth. And I used to manage marketing tours for the Rolling Stones, focused on creating one-of-a-kind customer experiences. On this podcast, we interview people faced with the decision to kickstart innovation, push through doubt, or pivot to something new. We hope you find something inspiring or encouraging as you listen. All right. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Kick, Push, Pivot. I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Mr. Pete Mackey. Say what's up to the people, Pete. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Kick, Push, Pivot. Yes, welcome back indeed. And thank you all for listening out there. We've got a good show for you today. We have Dr. Umbreen Nihal coming all the way from Boston, Massachusetts today. Uh, Dr. Nihal is a past chief medical officer, a current president of the Nihal Group, and uh, MIT Sloan Fellow in the MBA program. She's also a top voice on LinkedIn, so very excited to talk to you today. And welcome, Dr. Nihal. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. Thanks for coming. So just as we get started here, maybe can you tell us a little bit about your background and where you grew up, where you come from, maybe where you went to school, some things like that? Absolutely. So I call myself a human ping pong ball. So uh, just kind of uh, buckle your (laughs) seatbelt for the story. We've got a lot to Uh, get through. Yeah, so I made it, uh, but briefly, I was born in Phoenix, Arizona to parents who'd migrated to the United States from Pakistan. Uh, my okay. dad actually um, had gone to USC prior to that and then ended up getting a job in Saudi Arabia So I, uh, he, with the oil industry. So I grew mm-hmm. up as like an expat or what's called a third culture kid. So my parents came from one culture, settled in another culture, and then they worked in yet another culture or country. Uh, went to boarding school in upstate New York, then a year at Wellesley College. Then I did something very unusual, which is I left the United States as a young woman and went to Pakistan, which is where my parents are from, to go to medical school there. Uh, so, yeah, and then I actually ended up skipping undergrad, uh, then came back to the United States, uh, specialized in pediatrics, trained in Texas at Texas Children's Hospital and Baylor College of Medicine got a master's in public health from the Harvard School of Public Health, Uh, worked for a number of years as a clinician, then did a stint in Medicaid or the payer insurance side, went back to clinical medicine, (laughs) and then um, decided to um, accept a role in New York City as a chief medical officer for 14 centers. Uh, You know, and we'll talk about this a little bit. Had, you know, a lot of, a, a very steep learning curve of uh, going straight into the C-suite at that scale uh, and accepting a job literally a month before a $100 million budget was due. And how old were you when you accepted that C-suite? It sounds like from the story, maybe there's just a lot more to dig into here, into here, but it sounds like you accepted that job right out of school. Oh, gosh, no, no, no. So I had been clinical for a number of years. Got so I, I was just over 40. So, okay. um, yeah, so I mean, I think a reasonable age at which to uh, accept a C-suite position. Sure. Uh, but I think what I, one of my takeaways as I reflected while I've been in business school now is that you have to think about the number of things that you're changing and the number of adaptations that you have to make 
So it might seem like healthcare is healthcare, but being a frontline clinician in a very risk-averse, perfectionist space like Boston versus being in the Medicaid space, which is the payer side, versus being in New York City, which is very rough and tumble and a very different population, very highly immigrant and a lot of a, a wide range of humanity. That too in the C-suite and that too in community health. All of those are different. Mm -hmm. So by my accepting a role in a different city, first time chief medical officer in the community health space instead of academia or payer, those were a lot of changes at once. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like it. And there's a lot to unpack there. Um, Let's go back here for a second. You say you go, you just up and leave the United States and go to Pakistan uh, for school. Why Pakistan? Is that just because it's where your parents were or was there a good school? Oh, I mean, it's an excellent in? university for sure. I, I, I definitely think that a lot of who I am is because of that experience. How much was the school itself and how much of it was that I was in Pakistan at a time when there was a female prime minister? The chief of surgery was a woman who looked like me and thought I should become a surgeon. And my own great aunt was a surgeon who had founded and was running a both a hospital and a clinic in women's health, caring for both uh, the elite and refugees. Okay. So, I mean, I and that's what I realized is that I absorbed so much at that age, ages 19 to 24, that I didn't even realize I was absorbing until mm-hmm. I got into the C-suite or other leadership roles and I found myself able to tolerate things like, okay, manhole fire uh, in you know the Bronx one week smokes out the clinic and operations get shut down. The next week, a water main breaks and there's a flood. Meanwhile, you're dealing with staffing issues. Meanwhile, you're dealing with all sorts of things, regulation changes. Hmm. And when you go to medical school at a young age in a place like Karachi, Pakistan, where I did not know which day there would be a strike and the entire city would be shut down, which day there would be no electricity. I mean, the Ahan University, I was actually just in a meeting uh, with the CEO where he was talking about the operations, and they literally have three levels of backup for their electricity system. They, they're, you know, they are aware of supply chain issues prior to the pandemic. And so they have to have that level of security and backup plans and disaster planning. Mm-hmm. So often that comes along with a lot of like for control. But at the same time, you're constantly out of control. So you have to tolerate complexity, tolerate chaos, tolerate uh, uncertainty tolerate not knowing no matter how hard you work, if it'll all just be for for not and still not give up, right? So that's a level of tenacity and grit and resilience that I learned that I would not have learned had I stayed at Wellesley College. I I mean, I don't mean to, you know, say anything. I think I would have learned other things at Wellesley College, Mm -hmm. but there's just something about being a woman in a country that was being run by a woman who looked just like me while being surrounded by uncertainty and figuring out how to be a doctor. Yeah. And it sounds like a lot of 
very entrepreneurial lessons too, which is that something that's prevalent in Pakistan? Is there a lot of entrepreneurs? Are they pushing for that? So certainly under the current prime minister, Imran Khan, there's a lot of focus on innovation, primarily in STEM and tech. There definitely is a pretty strong business community. And the university where I went to medical school called the Aga Khan University in Karachi, Pakistan, which is part of a global network of universities, Mm -hmm. is run by the Ismaili community, which is both a religious community, although I'm not of that particular religion, um, but very much known for as a business community. And I'm not an expert on the Ismaili community at all, but my understanding is part of the reason why they are successful in navigating past politics and ideology to establish world-class institutions around the world is because they come at it from a business aspect. And ultimately, that's why I'm in business school. I am very mission-driven. I'm very humanist. And I just find that the United States is very business-oriented. It's it's fair-minded in the sense that if you can create it and deliver it and monetize it, go for it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not necessarily how I was sort of raised. I was raised more in terms of like more humanistic and uh, maybe a little bit more idealistic. But I do appreciate the fact that I live in a country that's very pro-business, free market, and I've got to adapt to what the U.S. values and the system that I exist within. And if business Mm -hmm. is the way to do it, then... Then, and there's something called social determinants of health. So I'm very interested in how do we achieve population health and address social determinants of health through social entrepreneurship. Interesting. Okay. Well, some of the themes that I'm hearing from you are, number one, learning how to roll with the punches. I think that's a huge key there in entrepreneurship, in business, anywhere that you anywhere that you go, as well as it sounds like surrounding yourself with people that are smarter than you. I mean, surrounding yourself with people that are like minded, surrounding yourself with people that are going to push you to do better. Um, those all sound like things that you've taken and uh, and used to excel. Yeah, I would say that. One of the things I probably had to learn was recognizing different forms of intelligence, right? And recognizing different kinds of smartness. So years ago, I'd met a um, a guy socially. His name is John DeBoer, and he is now a healthcare executive. At the time, he was, you know, a former Marine. Um, In my mind, I was like, oh, he has an undergraduate degree, you know, like he doesn't have a graduate, you know, undergraduate degree from Harvard, (laughs) <laughs> and a former Marine. Um, but coming from a very, you know, lawyer, doctor kind of family, I didn't appreciate at that time the really uh, complex learning he'd had by living all over the world, dealing with international conflicts, dealing with international policy, and honestly, as somebody I respect tremendously. Uh, But I learned a lot from, and I had to overcome my perceptions like, oh, you have to have a graduate degree. Oh, you have to have this Mm -hmm. or that. And so I have appreciated over my my life that there's different kinds of intelligence, there's different kinds of knowledge, and there's a lot to be said for getting out of the ivory tower 
and getting into those spaces where people are just wrestling with everyday problems and having to be very kind of MacGyver-esque and getting it done. Got it. Yeah, no, I, I love that idea. I, I've always been a huge fan of the combination of diverse experience and education kind of coming together um, to make or shape someone's unique perspective. I mean, just for my, my personal story, I had a chance to do that as well. My mom being English, my dad being American and me living overseas in Europe for several years after college and traveling all over the Middle East to, for work, meeting with people. It just, you do get something different uh, when you have that opportunity to do that. Uh, you know, whether it's maybe tweaking your political views or just your cultural awareness, there's all sorts of things that come through with that. So I, I love what you're saying um, as well. And I, I have a good dad joke for you, which I think you'll Let's like, given, given what you said about uh, uh, your friend, John. So um, what does a drill sergeant and a pediatrician have in common? Oh, gosh, I don't I'm going to I'm terrible at guessing, but um, <laughs> I don't know. You'll have to tell me. Little patience. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> so the funny thing there actually is that, yes, yeah, so my patients are little, except, of course, the teenagers. And then I'm like, this, there's something wrong here. You're not supposed to be taller than me, and your chest is not supposed to be so big for me to listen to with my tiny stethoscope. <laughs> but um, I actually, so what I realized, the other thing I've realized as I've moved into healthcare management is I have tremendous patience for kids. And for parents, because I, I just sort of think of my job when I'm on the clinical side as being sort of like a lion tamer or, you know, like when somebody goes hiking and they get mauled, they're always mauled by Mama Grizzly. So I see myself as starting off with Mama Grizzlies, then having to tap into their human brain by getting them to trust me. Hmm. Um, what I realized is that if you are an executive who has a lot of perks I actually have, I've had to work on my patients with that kind of uh, individual because I'm just like, you know what, you, you've got, you've got a lot of uh, things going for you. You've got a lot of things taken care of for you. Like, let's, let's be able to focus on outcomes and do the right thing. Um, and that's something I've struggled with in every executive job because I'm very, um, I'm just very focused on let's get things done. And reality is that when you are in the C-suite, there's a lot of unspoken agendas. There's a lot of relationship management you have to do. There's a lot of institutional complexity and history. And people are not direct, appropriately so sometimes, because there are consequences to being overly direct sometimes. Hmm. And that was Even a on the curve. East Coast? Hmm. Oh, very much on the East Coast. Really? Okay, that's very a shocker to so. me. I've, I've, in my experience, everyone on the East Coast that I've talked to is, seems to be very direct. So that's a, comes as a bit of a shock to me. So Boston is not direct. Boston is much more. Okay. I think uh, I don't even know how to describe it, but Boston is a little. I mean, a, a little bit more. Whether you want to say civilized and polite or passive aggressive, <laughs> whichever terminology <laughs> you want to use. Okay. Um, New York is definitely direct, and I, I appreciated that. But I think it's not even about the uh, geography. I think it's really about the nature of power. Mm. And the nature of power is about 
preserving relationships Mm. and working through relationships and strategically knowing when you need to say something yourself and when you need to be silent. Mm -hmm. And when you need to work on the relationship to get maybe somebody else to say it because they have more authenticity or the right other relationships. And in that, you know, to kind of fast track to some of, you know, what this podcast is typically about it's not that I don't have those skills. I've worked in government as well. When you are a woman in Pakistan from a certain family, you, you're never yourself. Everything I said or did was a reflection on my entire Khandan or my extended family. But I think what I just find is that when I see problems and I know that there are solutions, I just, again, don't have the patience to yeah. wait Um, You know, they talk about the first 100 days as an executive. If you are a chief medical officer for 85,000 lives, overseeing some of the poorest, most uh, marginalized communities in New York City, there are literally people dying every single day. If I wait 100 days before I take action, bad things might be happening. Mm -hmm. And I don't sleep well at night when I know that. And so that's part of the reason I made the shift. And I I haven't been seeking another, you know, physician, executive, operational job in a large, complex system. Because I know that I care too much about every single patient. And perhaps I could argue I spent too long as a frontline clinician because I still have that mindset of a frontline clinician where everything about every patient I care about. And you need to get it done right away. Right, right. And so, you know, and again, like mama grizzly uh, (laughs) parents, and I say that with love because it comes from a good place. It comes from protecting your child, Mm -hmm. right? So I don't say this in a pejorative way at all. I mean, I, I, I understand, I'm not a mother myself, but I understand that it's coming from a place of love and protecting your child. Mm -hmm. And I've been on the patient side and actually just lost my mother to COVID. Oh, wow. Uh, I hear that. Yeah, so um, I it was a struggle because I knew that if I spoke, quote, too much, I would be the overbearing physician daughter. Mm. But we're in a pandemic, and whether we talk about it or not, there's rationing happening. And I don't want anybody else's mother to suffer, but I sure as heck don't want my mother to suffer. Mm-hmm. Right? And so I, I get it. I get it that you're just going to push, you know, pivot, right? I mean, you've got to push sometimes um, because the system is broken Mm -hmm. and physicians and nurses are are burnt out and I I don't blame anybody for it. But I just recognize that it's so easy to go into that zombie state of just going through the motions and delivering on whatever metrics some uh, some algorithm decided was important Mm -hmm. or some non-clinical administrator decided. And so unfortunately, as a caregiver, as a patient, Yes, you do have to push. Absolutely. Yeah, and it sounds like maybe one of the reasons why you pivoted sort of away from that C-suite life was because you were trying to push and you were trying to get things done. And and people saw that as, as, you know, they wanted you to just kind of fall in line and you weren't going to do that. And is maybe maybe that why you kind of took the jump away from the C-suite and said, I'm going to do things a little bit more on my own, on my own terms, so that I don't have to deal with this type of thing? Yeah, I would say that um, that's a fair assessment. I think what I realize is that 
anybody will tell you to be successful, you have to focus. And when mm-hmm. you are running 14 centers in four boroughs, uh, with like one center having more of an Asian population, another center having more of a you know African American population, every population is different. So if we take an analogy from the business world, when you are a startup, you need to identify your customer segment. You need to have empathy for your customer and you need to design the persona. And then you create an MVP Mm -hmm. that matches that customer segment and persona. And you don't over-design, right? You're not designing for all of humanity. You're designing for your customer. Mm. And when I was a practicing frontline physician, I was thinking about one patient at a time. Whoever was in front of me had my 100% attention and I was 100% focused on their needs. As a chief medical officer in New York City for 14 centers, everybody mattered to me all at the same time and all of their needs mattered to me. Mm. And that you're just, it's, it's not humanly possible to do everything all at the same time. And that's something that my mentor, Dr. Feigen in Texas told me is that you can do everything. You just can't do it all at the same time. And just to add to that, he was an amazing mentor to me. And I had the opportunity as a resident uh, when I was early in my career to shadow him for an entire month. And what was amazing was, you know, in the same way that like the surgeon in Pakistan who was a woman, you know, saw me as like a future her maybe, it's, a, it's really empowering when a mentor hmm. basically tells you, you, you could be me. And, and that's amazing. But at the same time, when I look back and reflect, you know, it'd be very tempting given everything that's going on, the narrative about women and minorities. And, and, I'm, and those things are very real. But it'd be very tempting to be like, oh, just because I'm a woman. Oh, it's just because I'm brown or because I'm a Muslim. No, I mean, I look back at it. Dr. Feigen came to Texas Children's when it was a three-story building and he built it into an entire center. He had a significant research history, and he was already respected for his accomplishments in that way. It was a very different time before we had all these regulations. Healthcare was not this complex. Um, you know, we didn't have work hour restrictions. There's so many things that, that didn't exist. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to be fair to myself and my own personal development as a leader, I can't pivot to an easy excuse, even if there is evidence that there weren't, were some bias issues at play at various times in my career, right? So for instance, it is absolutely inappropriate that in more than one occasion, in the multiple C-suite roles that I have considered, the term arranged marriage has been brought up. That is referencing my gender, that is referencing my race, and it does not belong in that conversation at all. Mm-hmm. If I allow that inappropriateness from somebody else to distract me, I will limit my own growth as a leader because what I actually need to focus on is that Dr. Feigen started something from scratch. He built an entire culture. He hired the workforce according to the values, and he created a culture of accountability and compassion. And that's essentially why I'm moving towards entrepreneurship, because I don't want to walk into somebody else's pre-created problems 
And then I have to figure out all the hidden relationships to navigate to somehow create change. Mm -hmm. I want to just create it the right way in the first place. Yeah. Create it the correct way from the ground up. And then you have control over of the whole process. Yep. That sounds like the entrepreneur's journey to me, if Mm -hmm. I've ever heard one. Yeah. I also love love the way you're kind of weaving in awareness of gender and race as well into our conversation today because obviously becoming more popular now in today's discourse but it is it is and has been a factor for many years and you know how 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 you kind of chart your journey is there's an element of that involved as well so I appreciate you sharing kind of your perspective on that kind of thing because I think it's really probably understated on most of the physician conversations we have um, just because it does focus on academia and background or just specialty. Um, but this is really interesting. I think given the fact that you've also floated between different countries uh, and experienced different things as well, it's kind of a unique perspective, I think. For sure. There's a lot going on here today. Yeah. There's a lot going on here today. Exactly. (laughs) Awesome. Well, Dr. Nihal, where do you see the trajectory of your career going from here on out? It's a good question. So even though my headliner does say that I am a a Sloan Fellow, I'll be rejoining in spring. Uh, And right now, I'm actually more on the faculty side, helping out with classes. Mm -hmm. So I am in the MIT ecosystem. And then just because I love learning from so many different sources, I'm also taking some classes at the Stanford School of Business. But I'd say that I'm exploring. And part of the reason I I took, well, I took some time off for a variety of reasons. To be frank, um, the pandemic took a real real toll on my mental health. And Mm. what I found was because I've always worked in the emergency room, I've always been a hospitalist, I've been very action-oriented. That is psychologically my safe space where I feel like I see a problem, I've got solutions, I go fix it. And it's very Mm. gratifying and it's very immediate. And um, stepping away from clinical medicine in the year that happened to be a pandemic, and I honestly dealt with a lot of guilt. I dealt with a lot of uh, a lot of soul searching. Um, and then, I, so I took leave, and then it so happened that my mom passed away after that. So I extended my leave. So I, to be perfectly frank, I'm exploring. Uh-huh. I have a current uh, learning development platform uh, idea that I'm working on in the what's called Sandbox. Mm-hmm. And uh, really looking more at the work for, workforce development, addressing what, what I find is that, again, like I was mentioning earlier, often a persona is developed whenever you, de- you design a platform or a product. And often that's the most accessible customer, the one with the most ability to pay with the fewest barriers. And then having worked in government, what I find is that after you've made it in the, in, in the marketplace, then you want to disseminate your product through government and you get it to the most marginalized populations for whom it was not developed. And this is an ethical issue to me, the fact that we end up paying on the public dime things for an entire population that's not serving all the population. So I'm trying to develop a learning development pro- uh, platform that is co-developed and centered on the needs of those usually left behind Hmm. while also serving the needs of the average user, if that makes sense. Yeah. Very interesting. So that's uh, what I'm working on now. 
Yeah, sorry. So, so that's what I'm working on now with the idea that I also am somebody who has a lot of ideas and um, I tend to sometimes overestimate what I can get done in a period of time. Mm -hmm. um, a little optimistic. And so um, I'm giving entrepreneurship a, a, a solid shot. But in the back of my mind, I know that I do care deeply about population health. I do really care about having impact at scale. Mm -hmm. And so I'm keeping open the option that I would ultimately still rejoin a large organization. Sure. Uh, and work on as maybe a physician advisor within that on okay. population health, but in a role that's less operational and more strategic and business development. Okay. Yeah, I think that makes sense for you as well. Well, this has been great. There's been a lot of great nuggets in here today, and I wanted to thank you so much again for being on the show. Um, and as we sort of wrap up the show, what we usually like to ask our guests is, is there any piece of uh, advice um, that you can give to our viewers, somebody maybe like a young version of yourself that's starting to get into entrepreneurship or healthcare? Um, any advice that you would give to the viewers when they're trying to start something like that? Absolutely. So I think you have to cultivate your inner safe space. You have to do carve out time for reflection, figure out what your values are, figure out what your non-negotiables are, and what are the things that you can tolerate. And mm -hmm. I just think that in today's world, there's a lot of passion to improve the world. There's a lot of passion on DEI. I love it. I love the passion from the young folks that are, you know, maybe in their 20s or teens. It makes me very hopeful about the world. But, I, and I will say that, you know, as somebody who made a choice to go into a more traditional setting at a young age and be more respectful of family expectations of me, I did a lot of self-suppression at a young age. And I don't know that that's the right thing to do, but I do think it's a skill set that has sometimes served me well. And as I've moved into leadership and I felt tremendous responsibility, like the weight of the world on my shoulders, all of these lives that I'm responsible for, Sometimes I have felt that I can't have the patience and I just need to move into action. Mm. And I would advise people to find that in to find that balance. Sure. And you do that by reflecting, knowing what your values are, and knowing that sometimes something might happen that's not right. But if you want to have a broad impact, sometimes you have to strategize and wait and mm -hmm. gather the the group around you to have that support to get things done. So that sure. so ultimately in a nutshell, when do you act immediately and when do you wait and strategize for greater impact? Mm -hmm. Find that balance so that you can change from within, right? Exactly. And when, where you can, it's essentially change management because you can't do it alone. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's that, I guess, saying that's often quoted, if you want to go far, go by yourself and you want to go, I forget it. I, I don't love the saying because I'm a little bit of an outlier. So I'm like, don't hold me back. I don't, I mean, I want to go far by myself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but if you want to have impact at scale, you do have to coordinate with others. Definitely. And, and so that's really um, a constant mm -hmm. assessment and there's no right answers, uh, but to just have that awareness. Awesome. Absolutely. Great advice. Very cool. 
Well, again, great stories, lots of layers there. Look forward to those listening to unpacking that over the next uh, few weeks. And thank you again for sharing your story. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Nahal. And thank you to all the listeners out there. Make sure you continue to like, follow, and subscribe on all our social medias. And we will see you next time. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow us on Facebook at KPP Podcast. If you'd like to be on the show or know someone who would make a great guest, feel free to reach out. Hope to see you next time.